Just stay standing right there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, the name of Jesus is powerful. It means that he saves and you have sent Jesus to save us. And we believe that in perhaps the most counterintuitive way, you have shown how powerful you are in sending Jesus who gave himself up to die for the people that he loves. Today, I pray in this place, people watching online, people in the room, that uh, they would know that they are loved, that they would know that whatever storm they are in, the name of Jesus, that the name of Jesus, storms are calmed and people are healed. And those who don't have enough are given enough. And that today we would fully rely on Jesus and on your spirit that is at work within us in this world that is so often marked by struggle and difficulty to know, to deep down know, may we know that we are loved by you, provided for by you, cared for by you. In the beautiful and powerful name of Jesus, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Last week, if you were with us, we were talking about the battles that we all face, and we were taking some opportunities to pray for one another, Um, and I just want you to know that we're praying for you. Our leadership is praying for you, and uh, for for all of us collectively, Uh, for those of you who uh, gave us a specific prayer request on the way out, left that for us, we're praying for you specifically. Uh, For those of you who uh, put your name on it, we're praying for you by name, Uh, and for those of you who have remained anonymous or didn't do that, we're still praying for you because we believe that when we pray in the beautiful and powerful name of Jesus, that God hears us, that God steps into our lives. And I want you to know that whatever it is that you're dealing with on an ongoing basis, that this is a community where we come together for one another. And we do that because God is for us. There's a lot of people, and you might be one of them, there's a lot of people recently who believe that life is against them. You ever had those moments where it just feels like one thing after another in life and you just think, man, life is against me. It's like the car breaks down and, uh, you know, there's, there's something wrong in the family or there's a relationship that's fractured. The kids won't behave. You're too tired. Things at work are, are, are not going real well. And you start to believe, man, things are just against me. Life just seems to be against me. I have a friend who, who talked about this recently and maybe it's just, it's just obvious But there have been so many of us who have talked like this in the last two years because there have been so many circumstances that seem to come against us. Even not just me as an individual or as a family, but the world seems to be in chaos. So have you ever found yourself saying this? Have you heard somebody else saying this? And we sort of say it joking, but there's also an element of truth in it. Man, I think we're just cursed. Are we cursed? These things keep happening, unexpected things or things that are out of our control that we just feel like, man, life is stacked against me right now. Maybe we're cursed. Bad things shouldn't keep happening like this, and they certainly shouldn't keep happening as often as they seem to be happening. For a lot of us, we might seem like our negative circumstances have just been on overkill recently. It just seems like it's too much and it's been for too long. And I think we see evidence of this, of people feeling like this in a number of ways. One of them is the rise of conspiracy theories, right? Do you ever find yourself kind of going down that rabbit hole 
because there's got to be somebody to blame for all of this, right? I think that's part of why conspiracy theories become popular because it can't just be that bad things are happening. There's got to be a reason. There's got to be somebody behind this, maybe a group of people behind this, and we have to find that person so that we can blame that person because it's hard for us to imagine that we live in a world where sometimes these kind of things, bad things, chaos can ensue. It's just hard. I read recently that um, mental health struggles are up in 2021 from 2020. And if you just think of 2020, we were all in this place where so many things happened. Again, we had a pandemic and uh, there's so many other things that were happening as we were dealing with the pandemic. And for so many people, many of us, uh, there was an anxiety or there was a depression. Uh, maybe there were some issues that we were already dealing with in terms of our mental health, but it seemed to uh, exasperate, just get more and more and heavier and heavier as we were trying to deal with this stuff. But I've, I've read recently that actually in 2021, we're finding in a lot of places, a lot of areas that mental health struggles are up even more. And maybe that's because the things that we've been struggling with in 2020 that pushed a lot of us further than we were ready to go in terms of our, our mental or emotional readiness are still continuing. It just hasn't ended. And, and now it's not just the things that we've had to deal with in terms of our struggles, but how long we've been dealing with it has been difficult. I think that as we see cancel culture, just, just the environment of that and some of the anger around that is, is sort of this rise of feeling like, man, we're frustrated. And part, one of the things that we're frustrated with, rightfully so, is injustice, that some people have been treated really poorly. And I think there's a lot of people who are sort of uh, coming aware of the fact that we have to do something about injustice in our uh, culture, in, in our world, and figuring that out. And cancel culture has just been, I think, one of the things that people have come up with. And I'm not going to get into the positives or negatives of cancel culture and does it go too far here and there and whatever. But just to say, there is this sense, I think a lot of people are going, man, I don't think we should be dealing with this injustice anymore, whatever the issue might be. And we've got to fight against that and cancel culture. We have to hold somebody accountable to this. We've got to put someone's feet to the fire. We've got to make sure that people are paying for the ways that they've contributed to those things has been just something that has become louder and louder, whatever you might think of it. Polarization is a big deal. We see divisions in our world, and maybe they're bigger than they were before. Maybe they're just more visible, but there's very much in a lot of places an us versus them. Politically, who you line up with politically, a certain party has started to really, started, continued to really split people uh, to an us versus them. This is how we think we need to solve our issues in our world. And this is how they think, and they're very different. Some people think, man, we need to go back to our, our traditions and what we had in the past and what worked. And some people say, we need to go forward into the future with different solutions for our problems. And what comes down to is a lot of people, we see our differences and there's become an us versus them. This polarization pushing people aside. And I think a lot of these are these symptoms of a lot of people saying, I'm not happy with what's going on in the world. I'm not happy with what's going on in my life. And perhaps even this idea of thinking that, that life is against us, that we just, there's so many problems, there's so many struggles. And I think we all want a certain amount of peace. We all want, a, a, you know, a, a life that's, um, however you define it, prosperous and free of these, these deep conflicts that we often deal with. And yet we see evidence that that's not the case for a lot of us. And, and we've come to a place where perhaps, and perhaps that's just you today, if you're being honest, you say, I feel like life is against me. Like there's just so many challenges, so many problems. It might be on a personal level. 
might be on a, a communal level or a community level, the world level, uh, but that is, I think for many of us, our experience. Certainly, we're, we're hearing that from so many different aspects of life. I think we're in November now. I think the last two months of the year, for us as a church, Westside Church, Again, whether we're here in person, whether you're watching online, if you consider this to be your home church, this is your faith community, I think we have an opportunity for these last two months of 2021 to be the most impactful months that we have as a church. That's what I want to talk about today. That's what I want to talk about in the series we're calling Know Who You're For. And I want to start with this assumption or, or presupposition that there are many people, and we are some of them, but there's many people around us who right now feel like there's a lot against them. What if we could find ways to communicate to one another, to our friends and family, to our neighbors, to the world around us, that even if you feel like life is against you, God is for you? What if we could find practical, powerful ways to communicate that no matter what you think is against you, and I don't want to take away because there's a lot of things a lot of us have been going through. But whatever that is, that God is for you. God is for us. And I believe with all my heart that in terms of our witness, you know what a witness is? A witness is somebody who's, you know, in court, they call witnesses. And your job as a witness is just to tell people what you know, what you've seen, what you've experienced. So there are some witnesses that are expert witnesses. You know, they have a, a certain scientific background or, or, or a certain field that they can speak into the evidence or something like that. But a lot of witnesses, you're not an expert at anything. It's not because you're super educated, although there are some of those kinds of witnesses. But a lot of witnesses, they're just called into court to say, on such and such a day, what did you see? And for us, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, our job is very much to be witnesses, and that doesn't mean we all need to be experts in the Bible. It doesn't mean we all need to be, uh, you know, the, the, the most educated in every philosophical argument. But instead, to be able to go out into the world and say, I want to tell you what I've experienced, what I've seen, what I know. And here's what I hope we will be able to tell the world around us, is that God is for you. And they say, how do you know that? Because I know that God is for me, and I've experienced that in my life. And I think that this is really powerful, that most people who uh, maybe have no interest in being part of a church, no interest in, in, in God, just not part of their life, and maybe they're not really interested, are not really going to be interested in what God thinks of them until they know what we think of them. They're not going to know that God is for them unless they first find out that there's a group of people that are for them. God is for me? Prove it. There's enough in this world to show me that life is against me What's different about you people who go to church on a Sunday, who watch church online, who say that they're Christians who are following Jesus? And I think we have to take that seriously and say, there's going to be a lot of people who are not going to be interested in what God thinks of them until they know what we think of them. Not going to be interested in hearing about the fact that God loves them until they see people who love them. One of the most famous, probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. You want to turn there in your Bible, feel free to turn there, follow along, just want to look at a couple of verses. But likely, even if you're not um, 
historically into church or have been in church, you've heard of John 3.16. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Again, probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible. And it is jarring if you think about it. Here's the first thing that would have been jarring to the original people that read it. Primarily, first and foremost, this was to a Jewish audience. Here's what they would have expected. And we are very similar. They probably would have expected and accepted and known for God so loved the children of Israel. For God so loved us. This is supposed to be jarring to people who might have assumed that that's where this is going. We believe that God loves people like us. Our group, maybe our race, our nationality, maybe uh, the people that we're familiar with and we're comfortable with in terms of uh, lifestyle, religion, people who look like us, talk like us, all that kind of stuff. It was jarring for them who might have expected to read, read, and these are the words of Jesus, for God so loved the children of Israel. Now, this would be jarring for us because we could put our own little circumstances in there. Well, for God so loved the church, for God so loved people who have a certain sense of morality, for God so loved people who have good motives like I have good motives. Motives, but to read that for God so loved the world is jarring, and it's supposed to be. We're supposed to think that way. For God so loves everybody that there is nobody that you will come into contact with, and if you will accept this, this will change the way that you see everybody that you come into contact with. That there is nobody that you will come into contact with, that you will relate to, that you will work with, that you will live with, that God did not send his son to die for. Just think about that for a second. You know, there's some people, that's fine. I get that. Like my kids, of course, Jesus died for my kids. He loves them just like I love them. But then when you come up to those people who rub you the wrong way, who have hurt you, who maybe stand in opposition to you in different ways, just to be reminded, reminded that there's nobody that God did not send Jesus to die for, to save All of us, the entire world, God has loved. Every person that you come into contact with is a person that God so loved that he was willing to send his son. And more specifically, he gave his one and only son. What does that mean, his one and only son? That God has one and only son? Well, it probably means a lot of things. But one of the things that it means is that God gave his best in extravagant, selfless love to save the world. His best. That's what that language means. It's a little bit metaphoric, right? His one and only son. Like the most prized, extravagant gift, unique gift that I could give. That's how much God loves the world. That he would give on that kind of level. God has given his best because he loves the world. So that whoever believes, and that word believes, means has faith, really trusts, as in, I will trust you enough to follow you, to do what you ask me to do, to place my life in your hands, so that they will not perish, but have eternal life. Man, it's so powerful that God loves the world that much. Do you believe that? Do you really believe it? Can I bring up some some reasons why we might not believe it from the Bible, Um, some reasons why you would object, perhaps. One of them uh, is because many of us in in church have been taught not to love the world. Honestly, we have. 
This is very true. And some of you, you can think of that. Don't love the world. The world is dangerous. The world is sinful. You're not supposed to love the world. And you say, hold on. This is, John 3.16 is the mission of God. Displayed in a verse, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It is also the mission of the church. Because the church, we're people, um, and maybe you haven't made this commitment yet. But many of us are people who have made the commitment to follow Jesus. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's what we do. And so the mission of God becomes the mission of the church. We're here to do what God has done in Jesus. We follow Jesus. So he gives himself for the, to love the world. To, to sacrifice himself for the world. Christians are called to do the same thing. But many of us, we're taught on the one hand, it's a little confusing. God so loved the world, but you're not supposed to love the world. The world will steer you in wrong directions. The world will tempt you. You're not supposed to be of the world. Have you ever heard that? Might come from places like this. First John chapter two, verse 15 says, it's in the Bible, do not love the world. Go, wait a second. What do you mean? For God so loved the world. Don't love the world. Jesus, what's the most important thing we could possibly do to follow God? Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the people of the world, right? So then you come to this text. It says, don't love the world. And by the way, this is 1 John. So this is a letter that's towards the end of the New Testament. We were reading John 3.16. So John 3.16 is a gospel from John. The letters of John... We're supposed to be written by John, or it's a little bit disputed. It might be John, the same John, by the way. So the same person writing the same thing, which makes this a little bit more confusing. God so loves the world, you don't love the world. Not supposed to love the world. Um, or uh, a community that's writing in the character in, you know, it could be a school of John. Like John creates a school, he has followers. Follow me as I follow Jesus type of thing. That was Paul, but uh, John did the same kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it could have been somebody that's not John that wrote the letters of John, but is trying to write in the same vein of John. Either way, what we have here is in John, the gospel, and John, the letters, aren't we supposed to have like the same kind of message? These seem to be competing. So let's dive into this because this is where some of us were taught don't love the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Kind of contradictory, right? For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of the life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, when we are taught sometimes not to love the world, the intentional or sometimes unintentional consequences of that is that we create a very us versus them mindset. Have you ever felt that? Or you know somebody that's very much like that? So we're the good Christians over here, saved by God, loved by God, yay. This is the bad world over here. And so us, we're doing really good. Them, these are the bad worldly people that we just have to somehow shift over here. But for now, they're over there, bad people, and I'm over here, good people, because I'm saved by Jesus, I'm loved by Jesus, all this kind of stuff. What it does is creates the polarization that we talked about, which is very strange, because when you see Jesus, and you read about Jesus, and you say, where did Jesus end up, and who really liked Jesus, and who did Jesus spend time with, who was readily on Jesus' side, it was the people that all the religious people said were the they's. Us versus them. Them, the bad people, the sinners, the prostitutes, the, the tax collectors, uh, the drunks, the gluttons. 
So what do we have here when it says, do not love the world? One thing we need to notice is that, uh, and we do this in English, I think we do it in every language, words have more than one meaning. In fact, words have a range of meanings. And the way that we figure out more specifically uh, what a word is supposed to mean, most of the time is context. So when we're reading through and we see two things that talk about the world in very different ways in the scripture, we got to stop and say, well, what are they talking about? Because these are two different ways of talking about the world. Like I said, we do this in English too. So if I talk about the world, you might think of like our entire global community, all the people in the world. But I might also say something like, my kids are my world. And you would go, oh, what are you talking about there? You're actually talking about your priorities. You're talking about who's most important to you. Like the entire world is my kids. And so you're talking about, you're not talking about everybody in the world. You're saying, this is my priority in the world. These two kids, I have two kids, are more important than everybody else in the world to me. They're the top. They're my world. Or you might have, uh, say, a business person, and they walk into a certain business where many of us might be confused on how to do that business, how to be successful in this business, but they might be really comfortable in it, and they might say, this is my world. And you say, oh, what are you talking about? You're not talking about the entire world. You're saying, this is where I know how to, how to control things and how to do well. This is my sphere of influence. This is what I'm really good at. And you say, oh, so we use the world, the word the world, in a lot of different ways. Well, so do they in scripture. Sometimes the world means the people of the world. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. Everybody in the world, God loved. Well, what about 1 John 2? Do not love the world. Another way in the Greek language and for Jesus and his followers that would have been common to talk about the world would be the systems of the world. And oftentimes the political and religious systems, Jesus speaks against. Do not love the world. Do not love how this operates because this takes us in a bad way. Here we have a system of sin. And actually, if you read closely, it tells you what you're not supposed to love. The lust of the flesh, an inordinate desire to do just what feels good right now. The lust of the eyes, an inordinate desire to have what you see now. And the pride of life, an inordinate desire to achieve, to get ahead, to prove yourself. Do not love these systems. And we read why. Because the world, specifically these systems that lead nowhere, and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. So what is 1 John talking about? It's not talking about people that are different from you, your neighbors, your friends, your family that might not agree with you on religion or faith or morality or your lifestyle. He's talking about your participation in things that seem really great but are passing away, that do not lead to human flourishing. Don't fall in love with these selfish things that really are not good for you long term. This is good news. God loves human flourishing. In John 3, 16, that's what we read. That's eternal life. Eternal life is qualitative and quantitative. Sometimes we just think it means living forever. We'll go to heaven and live forever. But eternal life is also qualitative. It's a good life. It's the best life. It's abundant life. That's what Jesus wants for you. So what are we reading in 1 John 2? Don't love the world or anything in it. Don't fall in love with these systems that are not permanent. They're passing away. They're useless. Don't have an inordinate, too much desire for things that are not good for you because they're passing away. So you're putting way too much stock in things that are not actually helping you flourish or helping anybody else flourish. 
But if you do the will of God, that's what lives forever. That's what's enduring. That's what's good for you. That's eternal life, qualitative and quantitative. That's where you want to put your emphasis. That's what you want to seek. Of course you do. It is good that God opposes the things that are not good for us. There's some condemnation there, actually. Jesus condemns the sin that condemns people. This is what we talk about when we talk about sin, which can be a very loaded religious word. But really, what what it talks about is this stuff that is bad for us, spiritually, in our relationship with God, in our relationship with other people. This sin takes us away from what really will, will help us flourish, really experience eternal, good, abundant life. God condemns Not people that are part of that. God condemns the sin that condemns people. Sin is self-condemning because sin is that which goes against human flourishing, against our spiritual life, against our relationship with God. So it's good. If God just didn't care, "Ah, do whatever you want. We would say, what kind of loving God is that if I'm doing something that's that's terrible for me? Saying, no, 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 this this is self-condemning. The sin condemns itself. It leads to death, to passing away. In Romans, the language for that is the wages of sin are death. So if you work for sin, it pays you in death, not life. Chips away at that's what's really life for you, eternal life for you, what's abundant for you. That's, that's the paycheck. And so obviously the, the metaphor there is don't work for sin, work for God who gives you life. Actually, the metaphor breaks down because God doesn't pay you for what you work for. He gives you eternal life. And that's right there in Romans chapter 3, if you want to go look at it. The the gift of God is eternal life. So sin makes you work and pays you with death. God gives you the gift of life. Beautiful, wonderful. So what are we uh, supposed to not love in the world? We are not supposed to love, of course, things that take us away from God. Things that are bad for us. And it's good news that God does not love those things. How could he if he's loving? The call for us then is... Not selfish love of participation, but a selfless love of redemption. That's what we see in Jesus. I didn't just show up and say, we'll just do everything that everybody else does. Or whatever I feel like doing. That's selfishness. But a selfless love of redemption. That's completely different. Now let's go to the next verse in John chapter 3. So first, can we just agree, God loves the world. Which means God loves every created person. There's no, it's not us versus them. It's not, oh, we've arrived. We have all the answers. We figured everything out. All through September and October, we talked about grace. That's all of us. We just, you receive it. That's all you can do with grace. You can't work for it. So you can't do an us versus them. Go on to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Here's, here's uh, struggle number two with loving the world. One, we have to get over the fact that we are supposed to love the world. Number two, we have to stop judging the world. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That word, just like our word for world, can mean a number of different things. Literally, it means to judge. Here, it means to judge negatively, to pronounce a judgment, a negative judgment upon, to say, you're guilty. We know that again from the context. So we could just translate it judge, but the context here makes it clear that it's a a negative judgment, a condemnation. It is a, I'm telling you, you're guilty. You deserve punishment. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. I'm not sure why, if we think Jesus did not come to condemn the world, that some of us think it's our job. But we do. (laughs) 
I do know, I think, a couple of reasons why. One is, I think, um, if we're going to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, it's because we think it'll help people. I'm going to tell you all the terrible things that you do and all the ways that you should fix your life and, and, and how you're guilty because we think that guilt is a good motivator. That if I tell people what's wrong with them, maybe they'll fix it. Interesting that God sent Jesus to love the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it through him. Objection from scripture. Maybe we are supposed to judge the world. John chapter 9, verse 39. So this is only six chapters later. Jesus said, so Jesus speaking in John 3, now Jesus speaking in John chapter 9. For judgment, I have come into this world. Wait a second. He was not sent into the world to judge the world. We just read that. So that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. You say, well, Jesus did come for judgment. He just said it right there. But in John 3, it said that he didn't come into the world for judgment and condemnation. Well, what is it? Again, let's look at the context. John chapter 9, what's going on here? You have a blind man. The disciples, Jesus' followers, come to him and they say something that in their culture and in their kind of religious background would have been common. They say, this guy's blind. Who sinned, him or his parents? In other words, the bad thing that's happened to him must be because he's a sinner or maybe because his parents are a sinner. And by the way, you can look back in the scriptures and you can find ways where the Bible says, and God will punish parents and their children and their children. So they read their Bible and they went, this guy's blind. It must be because he's a bad sinner. And Jesus launches into this, this whole talk about, man, you, gotta, like, you guys are arguing about these, relig- these religious things. Well, who's the sinner? And he must be the sinner. Maybe his parents are the sinner. And later some religious officials come on and they kind of pile on and they go, actually, Jesus is the sinner. And all in the midst of it is Jesus is like, is anybody just going to help the blind guy? He can't see. Well, is he the sinner? Is his parents the sinner? We need to help the blind guy. And Jesus heals him. He gives him his sight back. He goes, I think, this is, I think, what the story communicates. You've missed the entire point. So when Jesus comes, and in that kind of context says, for judgment I have come into this world, he is judging religion that is judging people. And this is a little bit like tolerance. It's a bit of a paradox. If you want to be tolerant, at some point you have to say, I won't tolerate intolerance. That's the paradox of tolerance, right? Same thing with condemnation. I'm going to condemn condemnation. I am going to condemn the religion that condemns. So we saw in the first little section, Jesus condemning the sin that condemns. In the second instance, he's saying, now I'm condemning the religion that condemns people. Because if you join this religion that condemns people, guess who ends up being condemned? Everybody. This is in John chapter 9. One chapter earlier, John chapter 8. We talked about this a couple of months ago. There's these uh, religious people who bring a woman caught in adultery before Jesus and they try and trap her. Probably means she's a prostitute, by the way. So they bring her up. She's guilty. She should be condemned. We have the Bible that says uh, someone caught in this sin should actually be stoned to death. Jesus, what do you say? They're trying to trap him because Jesus has been compassionate. So Jesus, you can either stop being compassionate, but then people are going to go, oh, he's a hypocrite. Or you can say we shouldn't stone her, and then you're going against the law of God because it's in the Bible. So now you're going against the Bible. So they think they've got Jesus trapped. Either you're going to have to be a hypocrite, or you're not going to follow the Bible, and that's a big problem either way, so we can catch you. Jesus does something absolutely brilliant. Because what could Jesus have done? He could have said, oh man, I don't want this woman to get stoned to death. 
That seems crazy. He could have just grabbed her and run off and saved her life. Right? He could have got his disciples and said, let's throw rocks at the people who want to throw rocks at her. Let's save her. But he actually saves her by doing something powerful. So he says to the crowd, okay, well, whoever's without sin, you cast the first stone. And then he bends down. He starts doodling in the dirt. We don't know exactly what he was writing. And all of a sudden, all these people who are going to throw rocks, put the rocks down and go away. And then he looks at this woman and he said, has no one condemned you? Nobody thinks they should actually carry this out. Why not? Because if they condemn you, they're going to condemn themselves. If this is the way that we're going to do it, she's a sinful person, so let's condemn her. Let's, let's declare her guilty. Let's give her what she deserves. Well, if you're going to follow that kind of condemning religion, we all have to follow it. So all of a sudden, people start putting their stones down. Ooh. Because if we condemn her, we condemn all of us. We're all condemned. So Jesus says, no one's condemned you? She said, no. And then he said, and this is so powerful, but this is, this is so risky to me. Jesus says, well, then neither do I. I'm not, I'm not going to pronounce you guilty, but she is guilty. And then he says, now go and sin no more. And you go, man, that seems so risky. She's probably just going to go do that stuff again. But here's the rub. We've convinced ourselves that guilt and shame is the best motivator to change people's lives. Let me explain to you why you've done so many terrible things. And don't you understand? Prostitution is bad. It's terrible. And you can't live that way. And I'm going to let you have. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't layer on the guilt. He doesn't layer on the shame. And we would say, man, don't you need those things to make sure that she's not going to go do that again? But instead, Jesus goes, I'm not going to condemn you. Okay. A little risky. Just go sin no more. Very risky, isn't it? Isn't that a risky love? I'm just going to love you so much. And, and this is a brilliant thing he does. He saves the woman without falling into the trap and challenging their religious presuppositions. And then in love, sets her free. Uh, we don't know what happened to her afterwards. We don't know her story. We just know that Jesus believed it was his mission to condemn the religion that condemns and to set her free in love. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to love you, include you, welcome you in if that's what you want. Now go sin no more. Love can transform your life. Wow, that's very powerful. I think we're called to join Jesus in condemning condemnation. If there's something we're going to condemn, something that we're going to judge, we, we judge judgmentalism. We condemn condemnation. We say we're not called to that. Jesus over and over and over, remember this word is just a negative part of judge. Jesus over and over and over told us not to judge people. Do you know why? Because we're not good at it. We're not good at judging people's motivations and judging people's hearts. Do you know what we most often do? Give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. I know I did something bad, but I have good motives. And I was pushed to it. And somebody provoked me. And I'm really a good person. And we don't always give other people the benefit of the doubt. We don't know their motivations. We don't know their struggles. Want to throw the book at them? What? I don't, I don't know. Jesus says, man, you're looking at the speck in somebody else's eye. How about you first remove the log in your own eye? And we assume that we don't have a log in our eye. I can see very clearly what you're doing wrong. And I'm going to tell you how to fix it. And we got this big tree hanging out of our eyes. Whoa. Maybe, maybe our job is to police ourselves, is to worry about our own sins, our own struggles. 
to love other people. After all, it's very clearly what Jesus told us to do over and over and over. And this judgment that goes into condemnation is very clear what he teaches us not to do over and over and over. And I know we convince ourselves, I just want what's best for somebody else. And so I got to tell them what they're doing wrong and give them the guilt and give them the shame. Sometimes we feel like I got to withdraw my acceptance and my love so that they know what they're doing wrong so that hopefully they're changing. At that point, aren't we kind of just standing there with a stone? A log in our eye? Going, wait, I didn't get where I am. I didn't get to God's love. I didn't get to acceptance because because I'm perfect. I still got a log in my eye. I still got areas where I am way off pace. So maybe we should need to put that kind of stuff down and go, you know where I get to where I want to be? It's by love. This is everywhere in Jesus. That famous parable, the prodigal son we talk about, right? This, the young son, he asks for his inheritance. He goes off, he blows it all. He does all the things you're not supposed to do in Jewish culture. And then he comes back. And you know what about that parable? If you read it, it doesn't say that. And then the son realized everything that he did wrong and he decided he wasn't going to do those things anymore and he had disrespected his father and he was going to love his father. and He was. He just realized that he was hungry and he was outside of the family and he wasn't going to survive and left. he went back to his family. And guess what he finds when he comes back? His father running to him to welcome him back. He didn't figure his life out yet. He just got hungry. Sometimes we're out there like the older brother going, man, and they fix their stuff and when they really realize all these terrible things that they're doing and they really change. Maybe it is actually love that transforms our hearts for God so loved the world. And he didn't come to judge the world, to condemn the world. Maybe that's where we need to take our cue from as well. Let me ask you a hard question, especially religious people. I ask you that I'm a religious person, right? I've lived in the church my whole life. Do this for a living. For us religious people, this is a hard question. Are there people in your life, people that you, you really do love, that know more about what you're against in their life than what you're for? Are there people in your life where you've withheld love and acceptance because you really want them to change. But maybe their perspective is, I know that they're more against me than they are for me. That's a hard question, isn't it? And what would it look like for you to put on display that even in the midst of what you disagree with, even if you, you, you don't love everything that they do, what would it look like for you to show unconditional love? What step? What words? What actions? And you might feel like, oh, I'm betraying something because they got to know. They got to know that I don't think that this is right and I don't think this is good for them. I'm willing to wager that for a lot of us, again, if you're kind of a religious person like me, they know what you're against already and what they're really wondering is if you're still for them. For God so loved the world. It didn't mean that he thought everything's perfect here. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had to send Jesus. But he loved the world enough to go, I'm going to come and transform the world in love. Judgment? God's a much better judge than us. We'll leave it to him. How about that? We'll leave it to him. Henry Nouwen has this great quote. I'll just paraphrase it, but essentially says, don't you think it would be so freeing if there was no one you thought you had to judge? What if you just realized that that wasn't your job? 
Doesn't that free you up? Just say, my job is to love people. I bet you that there would be people, if we loved them like that, there would be people who actually would care more about what we think and our opinions if that's what we led with. So will we ever get to the chance where I can actually tell them what I think about something? I think sometimes we lead so much with judgment that nobody wants to listen to what we think. We don't have a real foundation relationally to speak into people's lives. We just kind of want to blurt out what we think is right and wrong and how they should live. What if we just said, I'm just going to love, 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 love. I'm going to care for this person so much. I'm going to be there for them so much. Bet you there'd come times where they would come to us and say, man, there's nobody that's been in my corner like you. I need your advice on something. I bet we'd have more opportunities. Uh, a friend of mine who's a pastor, he, he just said it like this. I alluded to this earlier. People will know that God is for them when they see that we are for them. I think that's true in our families. I think it's true with our friends and neighbors. I think it's true collectively for us as a church. Like, what does it mean for Westside to be a loving entity in Hamilton, in Ancaster, in Dundas, and beyond? I think people will know that God is for them when they see that we are for them. So here, here we go. Uh, Kaylee's going to come up, our host, in a couple of minutes. She'll tell you about some of this kind of stuff. This is what I started with. In the last two months of this year, in 2021, I think they can be some of the biggest impact we make as a church all year round. We, as your leadership, are working on some uh, opportunities where we simply want to express our generosity. We want to express our love, our care in very practical ways. I want you to start thinking about what it would look like for you to step into some of those areas to give your very best as Jesus gave his very best, to love the world around us. And as we do that collectively, what I'm hoping is that that grips our hearts and then that becomes the kind of thing that we do uh, in our individual lives, in our individual families, all over the place. So we do it as individuals and we do it collectively as a church. I hope you're with me. A couple of weeks, we're gonna do um, a food drive you're gonna hear about in a minute. You say, we're gonna be generous to people who are in need. Sometimes we stop and go, yeah, but why are they in need? Do they make bad decisions? I don't care. It's hungry people that need to be fed. We're going to create environments as we come to Christmas where you can invite your family members and your friends. And what if when they came here, and what if we were willing to be courageous to invite them in, that, that people were just willing to, to, we were willing to stop and say, how do we make this a community that people will walk away and go, I, I may not know about their God. I may not know anything about Jesus. I don't know if I'm convinced of any of that. But those people, man, they love their community. Man, they love me. I don't even know why. And then maybe we'll have an opportunity to share with them. So I hope you'll start praying about that. You'll start thinking about that. You'll start to uh, perhaps weed out some of the judgmentalism that is in all of us, I think, and to embrace this powerful love that was put on display that for God so loved the world that he sent his son, his best, so that we could have eternal life. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us to wrestle with this. I pray that very practically um, in ways that this is, this is hard for us, a difficult tension, that you, would, uh, that you would help us to always have the picture of Jesus before us and that, that as we follow him, you would give us the wisdom to know what this looks like and ultimately that the love that you show us would be the love that we show the world around us and that that would be transformative in our families and in our community, our city. In Jesus' name.